During the winter months in cities across North America, thousands of crows gather into overnight roosts. Night after night, waves of these black birds fill the sky at dusk, streaming in from all directions. And you can't help but wonder why. My name is Craig Gibson, and I'm an avid bird photographer, writer, and conservationist with a passion for educating adults and children about the marvels and mysteries of God's winged creatures. Welcome to The Crow Patrol, a podcast exploring the amazing phenomenon of winter crow roosts and the lives of these incredibly smart, social, and family-centered birds. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Crow Patrol, where we take a look at uh, a range of activities, events, and fascinating people who have an understanding and background with winter crow roosts. Today, we're delighted to welcome Professor Sylvia Halkin, uh, joining us today from uh, Connecticut. Just a little bit of background that I'll share, and then I'll ask Sylvia just to fill in a few of the pieces. An undergraduate from Harvard University and then a master's and PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Currently, she is a professor in the biology department at Central Connecticut State University, uh, where she teaches courses in ornithology, animal behavior, and introductory biology and ecology. She has and continues to have a particular interest in how birds use their vocal repertoires. Um, Sylvia prides herself in being a hands-on field biology with a wide range of interests. Sylvia, welcome. We're delighted to have you with us and feel free to add in a bit more about your background that might be helpful for listeners. Thank you so much. And Craig, I am no end impressed by you. You've developed an incredible amount of expertise and generated wonderful enthusiasm in your community for the crows. So I am full of admiration for you. Great. Thanks so much. We, um, what we have found is that there just continues to be growing interest in, in all of the activities around the crows. But I thought first what we might do, Sylvia, is just um, ask you just to recall and reflect on your first memories about becoming interested in in animal behavior overall? It's kind of a funny story. I've been interested in what nature's doing since I was a little kid. Um, My dad told me he would take me outside if I was bored and say, let's see what's coming up. (laughs) And we, we were looking at plants mostly then. And I actually started out studying plants in college, and I was interested in plant behavior, namely how they decided to grow how, when. I was working with a professor who was studying choices between reproducing by flowers and reproducing by shoots, basically, in a lot of forest flowering plants. And you had to extrapolate from one plant to the next to see the whole sequence of behavior. So that took a lot of patience in making some assumptions. And also, I got lost all the time because... I'm not very good at keeping track of where I am. And when I was looking down at the ground, it was worse. And 
then I realized at some point, well, I worked for a professor who we we're sorting microscope slides. He told me I had to come outside and hear mockingbirds singing because he knew I hadn't heard them because I was from the Midwest. And I went outside and was just enthralled and incredibly curious about what they were doing and why they were mimicking and um, ended up doing some undergraduate research on them. So I sort of knew birds were another option here. And then I realized that if I was looking at birds, I didn't get lost so much because I was kind of looking a little bit higher up than the ground and I didn't have to extrapolate so much to learn about their behavior. So that's what happened. <laughs> and then when was the first notion that you had of going down a path of becoming a field biologist as a full-time vocation? Well, it was more like I love doing it and I'd keep doing it until they stopped me. <laughs> I didn't know if I'd get hired. I didn't know if I'd get paid enough to live on, but I, I did a series of field biologist kind of things. There's a lot of short-term jobs in that field and they didn't stop me. So here I am. <laughs> Amen. Sylvia, looking back in today's world, it is still an extraordinary accomplishment to have a PhD. Uh, so just wanted you to reflect for a moment on, on the highlights as it relates to animal behavior and birds. Any quick headlines or highlights, undergraduate, master's, and PhD. Now, now you're a full professor, uh, but just any highlights uh, from each of those segments of your, of your prior academic work? Well, surely as an undergraduate, I was really fortunate to have faculty who I had conversations with that, that I found really meaningful. One that sticks in my head is the person I was working with on plants and I had a talk one day about the differences between plants and animals and how, you know, what sort of natural selection they're subjected to, what kinds of natural factors determine what kinds of lives and behavior they evolve. And a big one is that plants don't move very easily. So they have to get animals to do things for them often, like pollinating them and dispersing their seeds. And they also have to be much more adaptable to wherever they happen to be because they can't go somewhere else, which has really remarkable implications. Plants are capable, some plants of hybridizing across species, something animals hardly ever do. In a, in a way that's sustainable, but plants will just, you know, take their genes and somebody else's genes and put them together. And all of a sudden they have twice as many genes and well, chromosomes really, and they just go on from there. So, so that was kind of mind blowing and continues to fascinate me. And thanks to Bob Cook, my professor who I had that conversation with. And in graduate school, I had an incredibly smart and helpful major professor, Jeff Bayless, who directed me in the first place when I came in on the first day and said, I'm interested in what birds do with their song repertoires. And I've been looking at mockingbirds. And he said, there are no mockingbirds in Wisconsin. <laughs> and I said, yes, I know that. And he said, why don't you study cardinals? They have a much more manageable repertoire size. And man, am I grateful that he, he sort of put me in that direction and continued to guide me. Often my data kind of baffled me and he had good ideas about what might be going on and how to test that. So I'm really grateful for that. 
And then as a faculty member, I was fortunate to have David Spector as a colleague. He's another birdsong person. And so it was really wonderful to have someone who understood what I was talking about immediately, had read a lot of the literature and thought deeply about it, and also provided a lot of really helpful guidance. And I've gone to conferences and met people who have also been really important in guiding me and helping me out a lot. And even to this day, emails I get from friends and colleagues saying, you've probably seen this, but um, sometimes, but often not. And am I grateful that they're trolling the world for information I'd like to know? Awesome. Share with us, if you will, just quickly your path to becoming a full professor. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why I ask. Recently, a friend had indicated that he was a professor down in Rhode Island. And I said, well, that's a, that's an incredible accomplishment. My father was a full professor at Tufts University, now deceased. And as the son of a, of a college professor, he was at Tufts University, keenly aware of the steps and the pitfalls before becoming a full professor. But just your path to becoming a full professor, it's an enormous accomplishment. And of course, once you're there, they can't take it away from you. But just any inspiring stories there. I was lucky. As long as I was doing the amount of work that allowed me to keep my head above water and feel like I was part of the group when I went to conferences with colleagues, that was what my university was looking for. So it was not a terribly bumpy path. For some people, their universities, as a matter of course, never, never give full professorships to the people they hire in the lowest level. They sort of at least send them away for a while to somewhere else. And it's, you know, kind of like winning a Nobel Prize to get a full professorship there. And that just wasn't the nature of my university. That is great. You've taught probably over a dozen different courses, supervising also undergraduate research and, of course, a range of internships. Do you have a single course that for you has been or is a favorite? Well, I really enjoy teaching ornithology just because there's people who take it often have some initial interest in birds that I can help them to develop further. I've had the good fortune to have our university has a program where state citizens who are 62 or older can take courses very inexpensively. So I've had some community members who are birders join us many semesters and they've enjoyed being there and the students have enjoyed having them and I've enjoyed having their expertise because I am not the world's top birder when it comes to, you know, identifying different shorebirds or sparrows, I'm afraid, or even <laughs> sometimes warblers by sight or sound. And they, you know, often are better at that than me. So that's really useful for me. I guess the thing that's satisfying to me and I hope to the students about ornithology is that it's such a broad view of the field that once you've got the background in so many areas from, you know, anatomy to behavior to ecology, you're kind of set up to understand things you learn in a whole context that's helpful. And if you want to do research in that context, you know, you, it'll, it'll save you from making some mistakes you might make otherwise and help inform what you're doing. 
So, yeah. So just for that. And of course, I love the field trips. <laughs> <laughs> no surprise there. Tell us how did you become increasingly interested in birds and the study of their vocal repertoires? Well, I guess I found after that initial experience with the mockingbirds that it was possible to study them, but that there were a lot of pitfalls to learn to avoid. And my PhD was about cardinals and how they use their reasonably sized song repertoires to communicate. And I was walking around sort of trying to think about what I might study about cardinals, listening to males singing to one another from their different territories, wondering how I would ever follow two males at once. And I walked by a bush and it started singing. And I thought, well, that was very odd. And I found out there was a female on the nest in the bush singing and singing from the nest was something that had been reported a little bit in the literature, but really hadn't been studied in a rigorous way. And it's kind of a odd thing to do because you might think it would attract predators and birds like cowbirds that lay their eggs in other birds' nests. But for cardinals, I think that there's an explanation for why they do it anyway. But that meant there was something interesting to look for. Good. Many listeners may know that the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, formerly the Birds of North America and now under Birds of the World, has an archive currently updated at different points of roughly 30-page monographs, plus or minus a couple of pages for each species. A species account of over 700 species found in North America. And you led the charge on writing the comprehensive, roughly 30-page species account on the, the Northern Cardinal. These species accounts are probably the single most comprehensive written document on each species in North America. Books have been written and other pieces have been written about different species. This is probably the go-to source document for, for each. What was it like for you to be asked and to lead the charge on writing this on, on the Northern Cardinal, a bird known to almost everybody in North America? Well, it was an honor and a privilege, and I got a lot of help. So the first version, which was published, I think, in 1999, I wrote with Susan Linville, who, you know, covered about half the material, and I covered the other half, and we read each other's stuff and went back and forth on it, and that was what was published in Birds of North America, and then maybe six years ago, I started working on uh, update and a lot more research had been done since then. If you printed the whole thing out now, I think it would be a lot more than 30 pages. There's 405 references, I think, now. Right. Um, but I, I recruited people from several big groups, big research groups that were doing work on cardinals. And that was hugely helpful to me because they had expertise I did not have. Um, so they covered their areas. I covered my areas read through everything, coordinated. We went back and forth a lot. It was really enjoyable, actually. And um, I learned a, an awful lot more. And the, the new version came out in 2021. So good, 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 that's good. There. Great. Including, yeah, updates on what I found out about why those female cardinals were singing from their nests. They seem to be communicating with their mates about whether to bring food, which is a 
useful thing to do to avoid a bright red bird going back and forth when it doesn't have to, which might attract predators and parasites even more than just having sound come from a nest, which most birds don't sing from their nest. So it turns out that may not be what predators and nest parasites are really looking for. It was great to get to, you know, throw in a few small things that hadn't been published elsewhere and to just see how everything fit in the bigger context and what had been learned in the 20 years since we'd written the first version, which was a heck of a lot. (laughs) Exactly. And and it normally is. The species accounts are highly recommended. And for those of you who have an interest, the account on the Northern Cardinal is well worth it. And those can be uh, bought through Buteo Books Online, B-U-T-E-O Books uh, Online. So I'm not sure the Beauty O Books version would still be the way to go. Those would be hard copies of the unupdated accounts as far as I can figure. So people can actually subscribe on a monthly or yearly basis to the whole darn thing through Cornell. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably the way to get the updated versions and more are being updated every day. Terrific. Two wonderful options. And uh, for some, maybe both options make sense. Good point. Thank you. In 2018, uh, you published uh, an excellent guide on recording and analysis of bird vocalizations. And if memory serves me correctly, this was for the Wilson Ornithological Society, their field guide uh, manual. So how do you see, I've read through it, it's spectacular. We're doing more work on understanding the crow roost vocalizations, which is a whole separate category. Uh, This is not a normal bird call, bird song, but this is thousands of birds, crows all at once. How is the material in the guide that you wrote beautifully done? How is it used for bird identification and or censusing purposes? So the 2018 version was actually an update of an earlier version that kind of relied on people using cassette recorders. And my friend Walter Berry, EPA biologist, decided that, you know, it would be really a good idea to have people use their cell phones to record. So the big thing it does is talk about some cell phone apps that can be used for recording and Cornell's Raven Light that can be used for sound analysis for free. And so people could use those to record anything that, you know, they're close enough to and is loud enough. And crows are certainly a good candidate there. Yeah. But as far as, you know, bird song identification, Cornell has an app called Merlin that I've heard is pretty good at identifying bird songs. I don't have much experience with it. That's a capability that's been added fairly recently. Um, but again, you can input them through your cell phone. <laughs> so, oh, good. Uh, okay. Yeah. So that's, I guess that's where I'd send people if they wanted to do ID things. And usually people who are recording birds get some better equipment if they want to do scientific studies, because cell phones are really set up for human voices and you know, it'll sound the same to us, but if you wanted to play it back to a bird, it might sound pretty weird to the bird and you'd want to be careful. Got it. Got it. Okay. On to the crows and the crow roost. I dug through some of my photo files uh, because oftentimes that's the quickest way to put an event and a date together. 
as I was reflecting on how we first met, you had come up for uh, one of the many Crow Patrol walks that we had put on in the winter of uh, 2019. And on February 22nd, 2019, you came and joined one of those walks with your uh, close friend, Dr. Irene Pepperberg, highly accomplished in the study of, I think, parrots. I'll let you correct me in a moment. Um, the two of you came. You had a wonderful time. I had a chance to know a little bit about your background with the crows and the roosts down in Hartford that we'll get to in a minute. But after uh, that evening turned to dark, uh, the two of you seemed to have a little extra time. And we went and had dinner together at a local Japanese fusion restaurant. And it was really a wonderful time to sit and talk and listen and, and to hear more and all uh, from the two of you. So that's that's how we first got to know each other. And then we've been back and forth a bit since then. How did you first become interested in winter crow roosts? And how have you brought that into your teaching? I live in West Hartford, which is just over the boundary from Hartford. And anybody driving on Route 84, which goes from West Hartford to Hartford, at dusk between about mid-November and mid-March is likely to see thousands of crows flying over the highway. That's not a thing an ornithologist or animal behavior person ignores. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was, so I was pretty intrigued and spent a lot of time driving around, sometimes slightly sketchy neighborhoods to find out what the crows were doing and where they were settling. And um, they seem to like fairly well-lit areas by the highway that had trees in them and not a whole lot of human traffic right there. Well, sometimes they were on the edge of shopping center parking lots and the crows might even come down at night to have a snack if somebody threw some food on the ground. I was not the somebody. Um, and then one day, I guess I was driving onto the on-ramp of the highway and there was a lot of snow and I realized there were thousands of crows sitting on the snow and it was well past dark. And so I really wanted to know what was going on there. And so you did a bit of a study and you had sent me uh, an article that you had written looking further into this. What did you discover about this pattern after dark normally they perch in trees what did you discover about this pattern after dark where they were where they were on the ground well it had been reported before i started out by doing some reading and and there were reports that sometimes their bodies made little divots in the snow and it seems like what i think is going on to skip to the end is that if there's snow on the ground and it's windy and it's very cold, crows will stay up in trees until they start getting cold and then go down and sit on the ground for a while and actually are able to warm up the snow around them, not enough to melt, but enough so that it's warmer than the air. And they hang out down there for a while till probably they get nervous and go back up in trees again. And I only figured that out by going to WPI where there were crows on the ground in a football field and I wasn't just driving by on the highway. <laughs> Tell us, where do the crows fit in in, in one or more of your, your general courses? 
in, in ornithology or? So ornithology has a lab that meets in the mornings and not so early that the crows would still be in the roost. But animal behavior has a lab that meets in the afternoons. And so do some of my other intro courses. And taking students out to see the roost is always an amazing thing. They're amazed that there are thousands of crows coming in at dusk to a place where they've been before and just didn't know there were crows. And we look at things like whether crow vocalizations are actually attracting more crows to the very tree that the vocalizer is in or repelling them. We don't know yet. That's kind of a tricky thing to study, it turns out. But you can see things like how they space themselves on the branches. We can teach students to count large numbers of birds by various techniques, something you guys have been working on, made a lot of progress on. And um, I've had students help me in some of the research I've done. The, the research about warming up the snow actually was done in my backyard by hauling two uh, potatoes at crow temperature, one up into a tree and one on the snow with their misters in them and seeing which one cooled down faster. And it was one in the tree. And we've done other things where we've taken temperature and wind measurements at ground level and up in the trees at the level where crows are at actual roosts. So yeah, combination of things. Combination. Let's go back for a moment to when the crows are approaching the overnight roost and when they initially assemble in the roost trees, typically, you know, 10 to 30 minutes after sunset time, whether it's cloudy or not. What's your guess on the loud vocalizations that 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 are going on in this group setting where they become magnified by five or ten it's just it can be overwhelming if you're right next to or near what's your guess on what they're doing the, the purpose of the vocalizing uh, what's your guess on that well in the big picture i'm pretty sure they're trying to attract more crows to the roost because there's definitely safety in numbers and since the roost can move from night to night, I don't think most of the crows flying in are sure where it's going to be. It could be anywhere within, say, a mile radius. So they gather into pre-roost assemblages that have a lot of flying up and vocalizing and resettling in the trees. And then when they get to where the main roost is going to be, that goes on for a while. But I don't think they're sure that's really where they're going to be all night until you know it gets dark and there they are. So yeah, I think that in the huge picture, they're trying to, and crows often fly in after dark from far away. Mm -hmm. So I think they're just kind of letting the other crows know where the roost is. Mm, fascinating. How did you first get involved with the Christmas bird count uh, in regard or relating to the crows? Uh -huh. Well, Jay Kaplan is a member of Hartford Audubon, a group that was really helpful to me when I moved here from the Midwest and finding places to take students to see birds and answering my questions, teaching me to identify local birds that I wasn't familiar with and about their behavior. And so, of course, I asked Jay, who ran the Christmas bird count, and he said, oh, yeah, we've been counting them for decades. They used to be, you know, in some other place, and now they're in some other place. They've moved over probably 20-mile area over the time he's been counting them. So, yeah, I really wanted to know how he counted them, <laughs> and, um, and I wanted to tag along and see what they were doing. Mm, fascinating. So how do you think in the vocalizing to attract and signal where they are and all of that. 
as they settle into the roost, they're there overnight, they repeat this vocalizing in the morning before they disperse. So at night and in the morning, in what ways might the vocalizing be part of an information exchange going on between the crows, possibly about foraging grounds, who knows, but how might it be part of an information exchange as opposed to alerting to the location of the roost? Okay, so you spent a lot more time at roost at dawn than I have. Like I've spent almost none at mm -hmm. crow roost. In fact, maybe actually to be completely accurate, probably none. Um, I've been out early and seen crows, you know, flying around leaving the roost, but I haven't actually sat at a roost at dawn. So at dawn, probably quite different things are going on. You're oh. right that roosts are known to serve roosts for many, many species of birds that sleep in big groups at night are thought to serve as information centers about food. So birds, when they fly in, may have food in their, basically the base of their throat that makes it stick out a little bit. So if you look, you might be able to see who was well fed that day, but by morning, chances are that's not still going to be there. And there's a lot of movement within the roost. So kind of finding a bunch of well-fed crows and then sticking with them might be pretty tricky overnight. But certainly, I would guess as a human, that the first crows to leave the roost, they just leave and fly off directly in some direction, probably have some goal in mind. And in winter, it most likely involves food. So if you're really hungry, you could just follow them. <laughs> but I don't know how the vocalizations relate to that at all. Fascinating. Uh, we're going to be taking a closer look on that. We've been doing uh, recordings of both um, evening and morning, and uh, uh, we'll come back to you when we have some, some more data and some initial findings. What's your sense of, it's a whole other topic about crows, cooperative breeding, how the young stay with the parents for the first couple of years and help, but what's your sense for many of the birds in the Hartford roost, where we are in Lawrence, Rough guess is that maybe 80% of the roost population are likely migratory birds from something like 100 to 500 miles away, likely to the north, northeast. What's your sense of, of family groups migrating together and staying together in the roost? Any thoughts on that as we, as we close out? Well, there's a study that was actually done on that in New Jersey where local crows were radio tagged and it turned out that they often didn't even go to the big roost at night. They just stayed on their family territory. And when families went to the roost together, they split up. It was a social occasion. They were not together in the roost. Not together. They were meeting other crows. <laughs> and yet at the end of the winter season, they would be able to find their way back to the breeding territory and, and reassemble as a family group. Oh, I bet they reassembled in the morning. They know each other. They probably can recognize each other by voice. Uh -huh. Yeah. Gotcha, and gotcha, they probably gotcha. went back to home <laughs> in the morning. Fascinating. This has been terrific. Last thing I just want to have you comment on. So I think it was last winter. I don't know if it was the, 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 the late fall or early winter. You incorporated for maybe it was one of your labs, but you you focused on on the the writings about the winter crow roost in Lawrence and the blog, and you used that as part of one of your courses to have the students use all of those reference points to bring them through a, a deeper study of the crows. Any any thoughts on that and reactions from students? 
that's an embarrassing question. I think I took them to the website. I Mm -hmm. showed them the wonderful resources you guys have accumulated. I let them know that you'd involved, you know, artists and poets as well as, as biologists, just to make them aware of that. But I didn't have them, you know, try to replicate that in any way here. I just wanted to put that information in their heads for for future reference and also ideas about, you know, the way we as biologists think about nature isn't the only way. (laughs) And I'm really pleased that nature's inspiring people to do all kinds of things in all kinds of ways. Uh, that's that's a wonderful thought. The inspiration behind this, uh, Sylvia, is this takes place in the city of Lawrence, per capita, the poorest city in the state of Massachusetts, perhaps the 30th poorest uh, city per capita in the United States. And the thought was to shine a light on a spectacular avian or nature phenomenon that happens and stays within the city limits. So anybody that wants to see this doesn't have to get on a bus and go to Plum Island, but they can see it. And and by using the art center and having an exhibit there, by doing walks and talks, by working with school kids, second, third, fourth, and fifth graders in an after-school program, uh, a conservation uh, group from a, of, of high school students. We're also working with special needs students. And to bring a little bit of pride to all of them about this wonderful thing happening in their backyard. And what we found was by not treating it as just a bird event, but a community event that it drew a lot more interest and attention, raised questions and got people thinking. Uh, so it all worked out uh, pretty well. Uh, before we close, any any final thoughts on, on some of what we covered today? Crows are wonderful. Enjoy them. <laughs> <laughs> they have a lot to tell us. We don't know. I mean, even really common birds, there's an awful lot we don't know about them. Yeah, that, that's a good point. We're going to hopefully be working next year on solar tagging the crows to find out where they go in the winter, daytime foraging grounds, habits, patterns, directions, and all of that. We'll have more on that in the future. Well, thank you, Sylvia Halkin, Professor Sylvia Halkin. Uh, I thank you so much for your continuing friendship. You're always open to answer questions and you always have wonderful insights. Thank you for joining us today and uh, we hope to have you back sometime time in the future. Be well and stay safe. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Crow Patrol. Subscribe to The Crow Patrol in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your own favorite podcast app so you don't miss our next episode. You can find recent postings, photos, and videos of winter crow roosts Read the latest articles and research and contact us at wintercrowroost.com. I'm Craig Gibson. Thanks for listening.